if you get it right, you'll soon have, you know, whatever it is, 20, 50, 100 orders a day. But actually, you know, you can't manually enter that onto your system. At some point, there will come a time where you've got to make that, you've know, got to automate that. Hi, I'm Chloe from Zenbox, and I'm on a mission to get brands talking about how post-purchase operations affect the customer experience. And importantly, how to deliver on promises that mean you create loyalty that drives repeat purchases. Hello, and welcome to After the Buy Button, where I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Dan Dicker. So welcome, Dan. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you, Chloe. So um, to introduce you to everybody, Dan, you're the CEO and founder of Circular & Co., which sells recycled, eco-friendly and sustainable products with a mission, which is all about the circular design and putting an end to waste and pollution. So um, the company was launched in 2003. And in many ways, that must have been kind of one of the the first companies to start producing um, items in this way and now has annual sales of of 2.8 million pounds. So can you tell us a bit more about Circular & Co and how it all started? Because am I right that your background is in is in product design, is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. So I was I studied industrial design at university and then went to um, Dyson, the, the, the well-known vacuum cleaner manufacturer. And, and that's kind of where I learned my trade as such. And then I left Dyson in 2000 and 2003, uh, effectively to talk, try and do my own my own mini Dyson, as it were, uh, and I actually wanted to live by the coast. Although we're called Circular & Co., our legal name that we were called back then is a short walk because it was the whole point of the business was to be a short walk from the sea. And so that was the sort of inspiration for moving. And then when, when uh, as you touched on, actually, when I set the company up, there's kind of pillars that I wanted to work to myself, and it was just purely a personal choice, was to try and make new products out of out of waste materials and then to try and make them regionally um ideally in the uk if not even even closer and i think whilst i was at dyson i was i did get a bit frustrated that i thought well actually technically we could be doing products out of waste materials so that was just something that was sort of dear to me and and something i i sort of hang my hat on then and unknown to me like you've touched on 18 years ago it was it wasn't some kind of clever 18-year sort of vision of, as, as to how things might go, it's just turned out that, that actually, you know, we were quite ahead of our time in that kind of thought process. And, and, the, and the world has sort of started, I'm really happy to say, the world in the last sort of five to six years has started to catch up with that principle and see the value in actually recycling what we currently already have rather than just sort of our take, make and, and sort of, a linear model that we've been following really since the post-war years where we where we sort of take resources, turn them into something and then just dispose of them in a sort of carefree culture that, that I think, if we're all honest, we're all a bit guilty of. Um, so that, that's sort of the origins. And, and I think we have been at the forefront of that movement just by, by accident because it was just something that we wanted to do back then. Yeah, it's um, it's not a choice anymore, is it? I think you're right. Everybody kind of feels that guilt and knows that that this is where everything is going in the future. Do you find that there's um, any misconceptions about the circular economy aspect of, of what you do, that people don't, you know, there's a naivety to it or that people don't quite understand? Or has that, again, with the kind of development uh, and evolution of the company and, you know, the way that eco and sustainable is perceived, 
Do you find there's any misconceptions there? Do you know what? I think there's two, two main ones. And one, one is that the circular economy as, a, as an idea, as a principle, has been running for like 15 years. But it started in kind of academia and big industry and, and sort of filtered into government levels. And it's not kind of moved from there, which we find really frustrating. It's like, well, if you're going to be serious about reusing the, the materials you already have rather than digging up, digging up resource and then extending the life of that material for as long as humanly possible you need to bring in consumers into that equation obviously but it hasn't been done so we get quite frustrated and and it's our mission to try and promote this model the circular model and everyone needs to sort of be and think in a circular way so that's a frustration and that's a stumbling block and i think that's something we're trying to address in the industry you know i i was literally on on a a webinar yesterday with the recycling industry and the packaging industry and that was one of the discussions of how do we get consumers more engaged the other slight frustration is when you do start to try and engage consumers they just deem it as as effectively recycling like well isn't aren't you just basically talking about recycling you know we 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 buy something we use it and then we recycle it that that's circular but actually recycling is just one part of the circular model uh, and the key to things becoming truly circular is that recycling effectively tends to downgrade materials. So you'll buy something, use it, recycle it, and it tends to get downgraded into something else. Whereas the circular economy is about upgrading it. So every time it goes through a cycle, a loop, you're trying to add value, and that's what makes it sustainable. So that's really the key to the circular economy against to good old-fashioned recycling, as I'd call it, because recycling is almost old-fashioned now. It's, it's moved on. It's about extending resource and trying to add value every time. And, that, and that's where we need to head. And that's where, as consumers, we need to try and get our, our heads into, you know, that, that thought that everything has value. There's no such thing as waste. You know, and, and even the media at the moment still refer to everything as waste, a waste problem. Well, actually, it's a resource. It's a resource problem. Everything, everything's got value. Even the crisp packet has got value that we need to capture and reuse again. And I think if people can get that into their head, then that would be a really good start. Absolutely. That's a really powerful message of, adding value and seeing value where traditionally it isn't seen. So I think that part of the circle of creating that value almost. So yeah, if we kind of delve a bit more into that into that part of the circle, if you like, with how you're set up in your sales channels and everything, you have the D2C, the direct-to-consumer website, and I know you kind of also set up with Stockist, Wholesale, um, and I believe this is, this is on a, a global scale. So there, it's, there's a lot going on there <laughs> operationally. Um, it feels like there's a lot of moving parts. So can you describe a little bit for us about how, how you're set up to deal with that? Yeah, and, and I think it, the dynamic shifted recently as well, which I'll go into and due, due to COVID probably. Um, but traditionally, you know, our, our main core of our business was kind of wholesale where we'd design and make products and then wholesale them to, to you know, the classic sort of high street retail and then to distributors abroad. So we're in, we're in lots of different countries abroad as well, but it was kind of more wholesale and retail-led. Um, but I think, as as with everybody, the market sort of shifted in the last year, and a lot of it's more gone onto online platforms. So one of the one of the big challenges we've had is that shift, um, and that growing that B2C side of the business has had its challenges, because especially on a global scale, and one of the big areas we've face and been battling with is um, the sort of operational 
software management side of all of that. You know, we've grown onto different platforms that are really successful. You know, we have our own website, but we're also on Amazon, Etsy, not on the high street, those kind of platforms. And they've been really good in terms of sales growth. But then, but then you have to integrate that with your operational software. We, we use a, um, some software called Unleashed, uh, a New Zealand-based company. But that's really good software, but you have to integrate because, of course, if you, you kind of – I think one of the dangers, and it's sort of a warning for other people, is that you you think, well, actually, we can grow our online sales by listing on Amazon or listing on, on the high street, but there, but there are implications. And it, in a positive kind of way, if you get it right, you'll soon have you know whatever it is. 20, 50, 100 orders a day. But actually, you know, you can't manually enter that onto your system. At some point, there will come a time where you've got to make that, you know, got to automate that. So I just say to people, bear that in mind. As you're thinking, excellent, great way of growing is to get ourselves on not on the high street. But at some point, you need to factor in this, this ability to, you know, make it seamless. Otherwise, it does become a logistical nightmare. And we have found, you know, again, at the back end, once you've got it into your system and to Unleashed, you've then got to communicate that with warehouses globally, which obviously can be a challenge as well. So they all, they all need to interlink. You know, if we, get an, if we get an order on Amazon, it needs to come automatically through our system and automatically to the warehouse system in America or Germany, and the order is dispatched. And then as it's dispatched there, it then needs to come back through the chain and eventually close off back in Amazon or not on the high street. And we have found, you know, there's some some platforms better than others. I'd say Amazon's good, Etsy's good. They're quite open sources of software where you can integrate relatively easily. And then other others, to, ne- to name names actually, because it has been frustrating, but not on the high street, are very precious about access. Therefore, it becomes really complicated. So we've ended up having to get third parties in to write bespoke software to actually do the integration. But companies like that do exist and they are kind of set up for it. So, you know, it's all it's all doable, but I just think we need to bear that in mind as you as you migrate onto online platforms, because they are they are, let's face it, by you know, I think Amazon's a really good question, is that, you know, we have come under fire as a brand of sort of saying, well, why what you know, why are you listing on Amazon? But I think the statistics, I think in the US alone, I think a third of all a third of all product searches are directly on Amazon. So people don't even go to Google anymore. They literally just go straight to Amazon. So it's one of those that, that we felt actually you just got to join it and, and get in there and, and try and sort of make it work for yourself. So, yeah, that, 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 that's been sort of one of the challenges, I'd say, in the last year. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think a really key point of caution, actually, that people find really interesting is it's sort of like pre-growth, you know, you're looking for that growth across different marketplaces and, and platforms. But the main thing is making sure that the operations are there to handle that. So unleash your, your inventory management system and, and that that whole integration piece is is not a small part, is is what you're saying. You know, there's a there's a lot involved. And having that talk directly, I think and as well, you can offer something from this global perspective of saying, you know, and it's not just your your inventory management that holds it, but it, it's talking both ways. So talking to the to the your website, to the marketplaces, and then the other side of talking to the warehouse. But it's not just one; it's it's several warehouses, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. You've just got to pre pre plan for that because I think ironically, the easy bit is to just go on to Amazon and list your products. You can kind of you can kind of do that in an afternoon, but. 
you know, so just be wary of that, that there are implications and you need to get ready for that. And even just resource in the office, you know, these, these things take time. And if you're not careful, you can overload individuals as well, you know, and, and, and that can get stressful for people. If you're suddenly, you know, it sounds great, but you're suddenly, you know, inundated with orders, that does have implications and you, you just need to pre-plan yeah um and and so that that order element of having somebody um in control of of that that order management and almost again it, it's how it affects the the consumer in their experience of how they how they buy something wherever they're buying it from the from Amazon or not on the high street so how how do you make sure that that experience is is seamless or the same from you every every time I think you can, if you're clever, you can kind of automate that. Um, and I, but but I'd be wary about over automating things like that because I think the world, the online B two C world, has gone a bit too, almost a bit too far. And I think we've all had it, haven't we? Where we've ordered something and then you'll get you'll get an email confirmation of the order, and then ten minutes later you'll get another email confirmation that <laughs> I don't know. Jeff and dispatched has, has moved it from one side of the desk to the other side of the desk. It's almost getting to that point now, isn't it? Where you're so updated, you're like, Do you know what? I'm done. All I all I need to know is it's coming. <laughs> I don't. I don't. You know, I'm sure Jeff is lovely, but I don't need to know. So you know, there's those kind of. I think you can go too far. So I think you've all like you've touched on. You've got to. You've really got to see it from individuals' perspective, your customers' perspective, in that they just don't want to get bombarded. But they do want to be kept informed and it is nice to know that it is on its way. And I think if you don't do that, you yourself will get bombarded with people who, who tend to, you know, we do live in an age where, you know, if you haven't heard anything in two or three days, then you will, you will email or you will phone up and say, I haven't heard anything, where is it sort of thing. And you don't blame them for doing that. Yeah. So I think there's this balance about keeping people informed, but not over informing and, and, and trying to get that right and sort of respecting people's privacy but also respecting that they do need to be communicated with and I think from our experience you can if you if you're clever about it you can kind of automate that and make that fairly seamless from a logistical perspective internally I think there are systems in place where you can do that and a lot of the sort of the courier type companies have kind of got that interlinked within their system now as well you know as soon as, as soon as it's dispatched they'll they'll let you know or your customer know that it's arriving and uh, it's going to be delivered between a certain time period, which is which is also very helpful. I think the one thing we've got to be wary of is I think we are, especially in COVID, we've got into this culture of that kind of um, the delivery drivers seem to sort of drop drop parcels off anywhere now, and we all almost got used to that, haven't we? You come home and it's like in the dustbin or round round the back somewhere, or or even just on the doorstep. You know, it's sort of I think we've got to be just a little bit careful there and it's interesting with covid because we've all got into certain habits and it's, it'd be interesting to see how it changes you know i'm optimistically as we move away from covid it's like i wonder if certain habits are still still stay and that, and that throws up that question of whether people will be so you know have we have, have we now moved on to an online purchasing world and platform that we got used to and will that stay or will are, are people secretly desperately wanting to still go to the high street and have a coffee and try things on and buy that way it's an interesting debate yeah and i think yeah there's, there's been this this huge adoption but how much of it is is forced and how much of it is temporary i i guess we'll find out but i think that's the, that's the interesting thing isn't it about your the website and kind of being that much closer to the consumer with that whole experience and as you mentioned the kind of tracked delivery but actually understanding the what the customer wants at the right time giving them the information 
but not over, not giving them too much information. And, and kind of, it's almost like this, like you said, platforms with, with self-service, you know, the, the portal where if you do want to know where your parcel is, you can find out that's, you know, without having to pick up the phone and talk to somebody or, you know, you're worried that you've missed it, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's a, a real balance of what information is provided at what time. Yeah. On that subject, I think, which is really, really important from a brand perspective and a company perspective, the whole switch to B2C, and we've, we've learned this and found this out, but you suddenly have such a richer, a richer relationship with your end customer. You know, the classic sort of wholesale retail side of things is you're very detached from the consumer and the customer and, and effectively your community. So when, when we're a mission-based company like we are, where we're, we're desperately on a mission and passionate about trying to make people aware of a circular economy and a circular design and a circular lifestyle, you can only really do that with that richer B2C environment and, and, and link. So it, it's really great for that. You know, if you are a business that's passionate about something like that, then B2C is, is so good. Um, and you suddenly start building up relationships with people and people do engage and they do, you know, on social media, obviously, and you get such good, great feedback. And, and as a business, you genuinely adapt to people's feedback. You really do react to that. And we have lots of emails from people sort of saying, oh, you could do this, you could do that. And we, we do read them all and we do react and we do take them on board. And product changes, we get people emailing saying, oh, I love the product, but could it be like this or like that? You know, that that's when start things products evolve but you evolve as a, as a company and as a brand because you're that much better connected to the people that you're actually designing for you know 10 years ago I was guilty of it where I designed a product because the buyer from John Lewis said we'd like this please and you'd be like oh great you know we, we could design that and the buyer from John Lewis will take it and we'll make a load of sales but actually that was it was fundamentally wrong from a design perspective because you're just not linking yourself to the end consumer who's that the one who's actually got to interact with it and, and live with it and, and eventually going to buy it so i think we've, we've we've learned that from a purely design perspective you are so much better off being intrinsically linked to to the people you're designing for absolutely um you you, you know providing them un, un, a better understanding of your customer and providing them exactly what they want and, and what they need at the right time i think that's there's a lot to be said for being that much closer to to your consumer. Yeah, I mean, and and kind of building that community of of people around your brand who are like, and which is so important for the circular economy is that there is the longevity to it and coming back to the to the brand and uh, and actually one of the reasons why we wanted to invite you on the show was to talk about the take back scheme and and some of the kind of challenges and, and and things that were faced with that post-purchase experience so can you describe that scheme first of all and and kind of maybe the, the challenges that you were um, facing so the, the, the scheme is effectively allowing allowing customers to send back their product whether whether it's at the end of its useful life or it's broken um, there's an option for them to send it to send it back and then if, and they then get um, a voucher code, a discount code for, for another product. So there's an incentive, uh, a financial incentive as well as an environmental incentive. But the, the principle for offering that, as well as offering something better for consumers and customers, is that, again, going back to circular design and circular economy, is that the, the whole point of it is to try and keep resource in use for as long as, as humanly possible. And actually, when you think about it, if you design a product and then release it 
to the market and someone buys it, at that point, you lose control of that resource. You know, it's gone into the ether, really. Um, and the big challenge is getting it back because it's really valuable and we want it back. You know, it's, it's quite a selfish reason, really, is that well, actually we, we really need that back because we can quite, it's a lot easier for us to just recycle that product and turn it back into another product than it is to start all over again. So I think that was the driver behind it. So that, and, it, and it's worked and it's been really successful because people re- luckily do really engage with it. And we've even had, I think a really good example is we had, I remember someone when we said, look, we're going to offer a take back scheme because not, not many companies do it. And people are like, yeah, but if you think about it, someone could just find, say, a, one of your reusable cups in the gutter and send it in and then get a discount on another product. And you're like, well, yeah, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the reason for doing it because that product is being removed from the gutter, <laughs> you know, and, and, and being leached into the environment and actually comes back and gets reused again. So I was like, well, you know, that, that seals it for us. You know, that, that, that's exactly why we want to do it. You know, and when you think about, you know, we call it in the industry sort of leaching and in, in, leaching into the environment, but that's, that's the reason why we see so much plastic in the oceans is that it's not been recaptured which is a complete crime because it because it all has value and we need to reuse it again. And I think, you know, statistically, it's it's still not great. You know, we talk about a circular world. I think globally, the world is currently 8.6% circular. So we only actually reuse in, in a high value chain 8.6% of all the resources that we dig up. Um, and when you look at plastics, it's even less. It's like 2%. So we've got a lot to improve on, but but... That's great in that there is that opportunity. You know, we can turn it around. And I think it's between a mixture of consumers realizing there is value and they need to do their bit and, and do send it back or, you know, look at ways of, you know, and the take back scheme is a great example of that because we are, we're not just take back, but we have a, a whole right to repair angle as well. So if, if your cup, if you drop your cup and break it, you know, there are, we need to keep it in use for as long as possible. And we're prepared to do that as a business and as a brand as long as consumers will open their eyes to that as well. You know, I think we're shifting at the moment, which I find it really fascinating, especially as a designer. But I think a couple of years ago, five years ago, it was cool. It was really cool to have the latest iPhone and be seen with the latest thing. But I think in the not too distant future, it's going to be really cool to be seen having a 10-year-old iPhone because you're the one who's kept that moving and you've kept it going. And I think, I think as, a, as a designer, there's some really lovely challenges there about designing almost like iconic, an iconic phone that you can bolt on and replace parts. So as your battery wears out, you just bolt on another battery. Or if the cameras get so much better in five years' time, you can just bolt on a better camera. But it, it will have a look and a feel. And, and you know, you'll be sat on your train and people from the other end of the side of the train will look at it and go, you know, they've got one of those whatever longevity phones or whatever we want to call it but i think that that's where if we can make that shift to consumers that's when we'll start having the big wins when people find it cool to be in be using stuff that they've kept moving for a long long time and kept in use for ages absolutely so can you describe a bit more about what the logistics behind that would look like i mean firstly i I kind of my, my question is kind of like but how how do you keep that that message and that conversation going with that consumer, you know, for a lifetime of a product, which, you know, if it's a, a cup or a plant pot, for example, 
that could be years and years. So firstly, that that question of how do you keep them engaged? But then what how do they send it back? What is what's the process there? And is it is it open to everybody worldwide or and you know what there there must be just be so many <laughs> different avenues that, that 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 opens up. You're right. You're right. And it's they're two really good questions because logistically is quite is quite a challenge. We, we in in um in each country we're in, we do have distributors that sort of hold hold this service for us. But in principle, you can just go onto the website. I mean, every product that's that you you, you buy from us comes with all this detail in in the packaging. But you're right; there is an element. I don't know, five, six, seven years later, you would have probably forgot that aspect. And that and and so we have got another an idea that we are doing some research with them um, Exeter. Union actually, and I'll quickly touch on that. But logistics-wise, we have you know you can go onto our website and there's a form to fill in for a take back scheme. We then we then send you back a unique reference number um, and the address to send the product back to. And then once that comes in and we reference that number, that automatically and then uploads a discount, a one-off discount code that we then send to the customer. It's a relatively straightforward system, so it's not massively technical challenge, which is why I was keen to try and mention it, because because I think obviously there's environmental benefits of doing it, but there's also a closer community spirit in doing it, and you're getting closer to your customer. So there's some big wins for a, for a brand and a company, and it's logistically relatively straightforward to do. And eventually, we here, we just have literally... A stillage of different materials. So each product time a product is sent back, if we can't repair it, then we put it into our stillage. And once once that's full up, it's then economic to to shift to our processing center that we use to sort of effectively regrind and then remount down that that product. And we've got new raw material again to use. So the whole thing's relatively logistically straightforward. From a website and operational perspective, it's a bit more challenging abroad, but then the distributors have a, a, a similar system. And then we just have partners in each country that can take that product and recycle it again. And then the other aspect is how you remind people like you touched on. If you're trying to design a product that lasts 10 years, you are effectively going to lose touch and they may well forget. So another, another model that we're looking at um, is a rental model. And again, that's one of the kind of pillars of a circular economy is that is if you, rather than buying a product, if you rent it, then it's far more onus on the manufacturer to make that product then last a lot, lot longer. So if, if we were a washing machine manufacturer, per se, I'm not going to name names, I'll pretend it's us, but it's not us. <laughs> um, you know, we'd sell you a washing machine, but we'd probably design it for a five-year life cycle you know, because we want to sell you another washing machine eventually. But if we rented it you, then we'd, we'd instantly design it completely differently to be to last as long as possible. And then we design it to be easily repairable. So overnight, you change your whole dynamic about how you view a product from a manufacturing perspective. And then you as a consumer, you're, you'll pay X amount per month or a year, but, but you'd effectively have a washing machine for life then. So if it goes wrong, it'll get repaired or it'll get replaced. So that's something we're trying to explore. You know, how do we break that barrier down where someone might pay £10 for a cup, but actually would they rather just pay, I, I don't know, 50p a month or something, but they know they're completely covered and we as a brand will look after them. And, and I think the big benefit is you then have that relationship, that ongoing relationship. They don't forget about you 10 years later when their product eventually gives up the ghost and forget to send it back. They're actually 
you, you've indulged in a relationship together. And that, and that brand loyalty is obviously, as a, as a company, the, the golden nugget, the golden ticket that we're all trying to look for, aren't we? We're trying to create a relationship with our customers um, and, and, a, and, a, and a loyalty. Yeah, um, which is obviously yeah one of the things that we see with many subscription type brands, like you said, um, that whole the, you brought into a monthly cycle, and you have that audience and that community almost as well. Build that community of people all doing the same things for the same reason, which you know is is longevity of the product and 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 a better economy and and usage of the resource that we have. So what what's what would be involved in that? Are you looking at kind of the the technology? Is there automation? I noticed that you talked about automation with the the take back scheme, and obviously that's just it's just sort of processed and they automatically get a code. How far have you got with this with this rental? Is there more information about the technology behind it? No, if I'm, we've only got to the stage where we're looking at more of the economic model and then the consumer behaviour. They're the two things we want to make sure are, are, are doable. You know, does it does it stack up economically, uh, and what are the long term gains from it as opposed to the short term pain? You know, because you're you're not selling a ten pound cup, you're you're just getting one pound a month or two pounds a year or whatever the model would would look to be. So there's a sort of cash flow implications of how you deal with that. So we're looking at that side of things, and then we're looking at consumer behaviour and would people switch to that model, or do people still prefer just to just to buy and and kind of forget as it were. Um, so we're kind of in those stages. So we haven't we haven't started to address the logistics, um, if I'm honest, in in that area. And it, and it's something that we need obviously looking at. But I think that's all very doable. And I think anything that you can build in that area is only going to help because you're building your communication, your relationship with that customer. I think again there'd be a balance though because you you, you kind of a pet, you're effectively joined at the hip because they're reliant on you. But at the same time, they don't want to be bombarded by you and, and sort of constantly reminded. It's like you're there for them if they need you. I think you've got to try and get that balance right, haven't you? So I think, um, unfortunately, we're not at that stage from a logistics perspective to give any top tips on how that would work. There are, I would urge people, one that springs to mind is a company called Mud Jeans, M-U-D, Mud Jeans. They, they run a, a, a purely higher system for their jeans. So you effectively hire their jeans. So they're already running it. So there are, you know, we're not the only ones out there looking at this. There's people, there's already people doing it. So you put, people could perhaps look them up and just see how that works and try and get some tips on them operationally of, of how they of how they do it. And they've been doing it for a, a fair while now. So it's obviously working for them, which is really good to see. Absolutely. So how long when you when you started the the kind of take back scheme? Practically, how long did that? that take you to set up i mean i mean we're kind of talking about how easy it was really so yeah what what's how long was that process for you pretty pretty quickly once you've sorted the back end as in how are we going to deal with products coming back to us and, and can we process them and remanufacture them and, and use that material as long as you're you've got that set up the actual the actual front end the consumer facing end was pretty pretty straightforward in terms of you know it, it was different messaging on packaging, adapting the website so people could go to it and then and, uh, and have a sort of flow system where they're sort of looked after and sent through. And we don't automatically take products back because the first port of call is say, well, actually, is it easier just to repair it? Could we send you a new seal, for example, in the post and then your then your cup is working again? But if, if 
actually, you know, the worst case scenario really, isn't it, for everybody is that you've then got to send the whole cup back to get recycled. You really want to keep it in use for as long as possible. So I think the first, yeah, I think logistically it is pretty straightforward. You can just, it's, it's, it's kind of website based and that flow seems to work pretty well. People seem to understand it and get their heads around it and see the value of it and engage with it. Um, and they actually quite enjoy it. Uh, I think people just feel naturally good about the fact that they, they can send something back and it. it's going to get reused again, as opposed to even just over and above, even perhaps just putting it out for recycling. It's just um, a cleaner a cleaner path to its reuse. Absolutely. Uh, so what, adv- what advice would you give to anybody kind of looking to this, but like, where do people sort of go wrong? Where do they fail? Is there anywhere that, that you would, or anything that you would particularly recommend to steer away from or steer in the direction of? Um, that's a good question. I think, I, think, um, I think the only, I think consumers engage with it well. I think you've got to just be a little bit, a little bit careful about how, you know, run a, if you can sort of run a pilot first, because they could, if you don't, if you're not careful about it, there could be potential loopholes. I don't know where if people can grab discount codes from somewhere and start using them, even if they've not got a product they've sent back. Because if once you've got that code, you can, in theory, just go onto the site and buy something and put the code in. So that I think you've got to be just proof check it a bit to make mm. sure it's not open to abuse. And then just proof check that people understand the system and can engage with that system but we've we've in general found people seem to find that pretty straightforward we're not inundated with people saying how what do i do now what, what you know even just what button do i press and how do i send it back and what address have i got to send it back to and when do i hear from you we don't get many we don't get many questions which is good and i think if you're, if you're quite upfront at the beginning about the two angles it's like economically you're better off sending it back because the discount we give you will offset more than offset the cost of the postage but from a from a materials and a, an environment perspective, then obviously everyone's better off. And then those two angles seem to cover most people. You know, I don't, I don't want to be a bit hypocritical about certain people, but I think some are just driven purely by the cost and not the environment angle. And we're fine by that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the world we live in. Not, not everybody is driven by the environment, but I think so. You need to offer both of those incentives. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really key point, isn't it? You know, the, the more people that do it and that offer this this type of service and care about this type of way of, of doing things, you know, the circular economy and everything, it will become more affordable as, as we kind of realise. And like you said, there's eventually it's going to reach a point where there's there's no other way. You know, that's 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 how we have to do things to reuse. But uh, yeah, that's I mean, some really good advice there and, and kind of snippets. And I think that you obviously are are doing a lot right if you're not having a lot of the uh, spending a lot of time kind of trying to explain uh the the processes and and things to people that obviously means that that your systems and your processes are are very good um so yeah i think thank you very much for that information the the final question that i had for you just as a a kind of a little bit of, of insight into how you work and and maybe some some inspiration for for people looking for uh, resources and things is just to ask is there any is there a, a book or way a podcast or what you know where you get some information from that really kind of inspires you and has kind of helped you and guided you in your career the one that springs to mind and i think it might well be because we've all just spent a year a year in lockdown there's a book called quiet 
by Susan Cain. Uh, and it's, it's, it's got a really good title. It's The Power of Introverts in the World That Can't Stop Talking. Uh, and, I think, and I think if we're not careful, we're all, we've all been caught up into this, this sort of melee in the last few years of social media and, and, and just the way the world seems to have gone. It's like we're bombarded by noise. And I think there's a danger that people think, I need to join in with that noise, otherwise I'm not successful either as a, as a person or as a business. And it's a great, great book for just putting that into perspective and saying, actually, you're actually, when you think about it, better off being an introvert than an extrovert. The world doesn't need lots of extroverts. And when you think about it and break it down, all the, you, you, it gives you so many examples of successful people or brands or any occasions where actually the person, the quiet person in the corner that's actually listening to everybody and consuming everything that's being said and processing it and having a clear head to actually then act on it is far more successful than the brash person at the front being noisy and loud. Um, so just for me on a personal level, it was a really good book. You know, I'm, I think at heart I am an introvert and I, and I benefited from, from it. I just thought, you know what, it's actually all right. And if anything, it's actually better. I read the book and just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm better. I'm better being quiet. And there's loads of examples, even, even from an innovation perspective, there's really good evidence to show that, you know, the classic example in design is like, let's have a brainstorm. Let's get 10, 10 people in a room and we'll solve this problem and we'll come up with a really creative idea. Well, actually, it's the worst thing you can do. It doesn't work. And this book gives loads of evidence where it just doesn't work. They've done a load of scientific research. It's like, that's the worst thing you can do because... I don't know, two people out of the 10 will, will kibosh the entire proceedings and put their ideas first. And, and actually, the best thing you can do is put those 10 people into to 10 different quiet rooms and give them an hour and then bring everyone back and put their ideas forward. And that, that's actually how you get creative, is just giving yourself space to breathe on your own. Uh, and even just the concept of an open office, you know, that, that's all now being reversed. So even the big, yeah. even the tech brands, you know, they're not, they're now, everyone's going back to their own quiet little area and, and the big open plan office, they realised, <laughs> just, was, was just a bad, just a bad idea. Too noisy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I, for me, that, that worked really well from an individual perspective, but I think there's a lot of learning you can learn from a business perspective as well. It's like, it, it's good to be quiet. Don't worry about it. Great. Yeah, I think... Um... That's, I mean, it's not surprising, actually, that, that from somebody, you know, talking to somebody who, you know, has, has developed, it, it has this design background, is creative, um, you know, you've, you've, you've built this sustainable kind of thing, that which it can only really be, you know, thought about when, when you take a step back and, and look at how the economy is set up and, you know, how to solve this problem of pollution and, and waste and things. I think that it all sort of goes hand in hand with where you've got your inspiration from. Obviously, we mentioned before the show that you're, you're based in Cornwall and you've got that, you, you know, back to nature type of thing. So that yeah. makes a lot of sense that you would mention a book that was kind of, um, that, that was more about thinking, I, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I'm going to go and check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> I recommend it. Great. Um, thank you very much for, for joining us on the show um, and we'll catch up with you soon. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chloe. Thank you.